No matter who you are, things in your life probably aren't going as expected, whatever that means. But the things you are doing right now, no matter what they are, that's your life. It's not a plan B. I'm your host, Madeline Mortensen, and you're listening to This Is Not A Backup Plan. Hello friends, good morning! I feel like it's been a really long time since I've chatted with you since the last two episodes I pre-recorded before I went to Paris. I had a lot of fun and I'm also really excited that I'm back. I spent six days in Europe, two in Paris, two in Versailles, two in Brussels. The first and the last day were in Paris and then there were the four days in the middle. That was the first time I'd ever flown to a foreign country by myself and then navigated the foreign country by myself. I have never like had to figure out how to get from an airport to where I was staying and figure out a public transit system in a different language all by myself. And it was not as bad as I thought it would be. I feel like it went a lot better than I imagined. And I'm really excited that that's now on the list of things that I know how to do. My aunt took me on a business trip with her. So I met her in Versailles my second day, but the first day was just in Paris by myself. And it was a lot of fun. I went to the Louvre. I went to Saint-Chapelle. I ate some really yummy food. I had really good Vietnamese food. And I think that was one of my favorite things I ate on the trip is I had Vietnamese food a few times and it was just very, very tasty. And then I was really lucky because we went to Brussels for a few of the days and my cousin who lives in the Netherlands came and met me and we just wandered around Brussels, which I think of the three cities I went to was my favorite. It was so cute with lots of very lovely little like city centers, like little gathering spots, very narrow streets, lots of places that were like pedestrian only and was just very, very charming. And I got a bunch of things for my Easter tree. And I think in the next like week or two, I'm going to put up my Easter decorations since Easter is in the beginning of April this year. And I'm really looking forward to that. So February is wrapping up and that means March is starting this week. And for March, I'm going to be doing something a little bit different on the podcast. In March, all of my episodes will be Little Women themed and Little Women related for what I am calling March Sisters Madness. Last March, I was listening to a podcast I really love called Dolls of Our Lives, and one of the hosts made a comment about how it was March Madness, and unfortunately, that had nothing to do with the March Sisters. And it just got me thinking about how much fun it would be if there was a March Madness that had to do with the March Sisters. And so I decided to do a few special podcast episodes for March. And also I created a calendar that breaks down how many chapters a day you would need to do to read Little Women this month. And it also includes some March Sisters activities and then a Little Women movie to watch each weekend. I recognize this like doesn't relate to my typical content. If you're like asking yourself how it relates, the answer is it doesn't. I just thought this is my podcast and it would make me super happy. And so I'm really looking forward to it. But if Little Women is not your thing, don't worry. Come back in April. 
the episodes will be the typical episodes that you would expect. You can find the calendar for all the reading in the show notes or on social media. And if you do participate, I would love to see pictures of what you're doing and I would love to hear about your March Sisters experience. For this week's episode, I interviewed Rachel Ruckert, the author of East Winds, A Global Quest to Reckon with Marriage. I love Rachel's memoir and I was really excited that I got to talk with her about it. Last year, it came out in November, so in the time leading up to that, I started seeing all the promotional material, and I knew that it was something that I was going to really like and really connect with, and I thought it was something that you guys would like as well. Rachel does a really good job introducing her book in this interview, so I'm going to let her do that. And I hope that after this conversation, you'll get a copy of Rachel's book. Check it out from your library. You can buy it on the internet. So many good places that you can find it. So enjoy. Hello, Rachel. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm really excited to chat with you. Will you just take a moment to introduce yourself? Sure. Thank you so much for having me. This podcast is so incredible and the mission is so important. My name is Rachel Rukert. I am a writer, editor, and teacher, seventh generation Utah, currently splitting my time between Salt Lake City and Cambridge, Massachusetts. And I am the author of East Winds, a memoir that just came out in November of 2022. So we're here to talk about your book today. Will you take a minute to tell people what it's about? How do you describe it to people? What's the important summary you feel like to know if we're going to have a conversation about it? East Winds is a coming of age story. My coming of age story, days after getting married, I went on a shoestring backpacking honeymoon with my new husband. And I was researching what marriage and wedding symbolism meant in the different cultures that we were immersed in, while also reckoning with my own past and what marriage meant to me as someone who kind of felt like getting married was somehow dying. <laughs> like, like I'd, I'd reached um, a point in my trajectory where the map I was handed ended. And so it's, yeah, it's an internal reckoning and it's also an exploration. So it's sort of part ethnography, love story, memoir, cultural memoir. It's a hodgepodge, but it's definitely the book I needed to write. I was explaining it to a friend last night. I was telling her about this interview and about this book because I thought she'd really enjoy it. And it feels like there are really like three main elements braided through it. There's the story of your honeymoon trip. Then there's like your personal story of how you grew up and your feelings about marriage. And then there's the stories that you collected along the way. And it's really wonderful how those three parts like work together and the story that they create when put together. That's really well said. Thank you. So I am just always curious when someone has a book, how did you decide to write the book and what was your process in gathering like your personal experiences and these experiences that you had collected and weaving them together to be one story? Thank you for that question. This book actually took me eight years to write. The frame story that took place over the course of a year and which is the kind of the spine in which I hang different other vignettes and material off of. That obviously only took a year. And when I came back from my trip, I wrote the very first draft, which was the what happened draft. And it did take me the, the seven more years to figure out what it meant. I always knew I was writing something. I don't know if I necessarily knew what I was writing. 
I feel like unlike other writing projects and other books that I've worked on, I feel like I've been writing this book my whole life. I was obsessed and terrified and paralyzed and haunted, frankly, by the institution of marriage and feeling like it's what I should want. It's what I'm supposed to want. I want to be good. I want to be liked. I also want love and companionship and belonging. But something about this felt very nebulous and scary to me. And I didn't quite know why. And so initially, when I set out on this trip, backpacking around the world, I have a background in anthropology. And so I knew I was going to be researching what marriage and wedding symbolism meant in other cultures, because I was hoping it might teach me something about what marriage meant outside of my own cultural upbringing. That's just the anthropologist. I was just curious about the way other people live and the wisdom that they might have. But I don't think I fully understood until I was going along with the trip, realizing that I've put myself through like a baptism by fire <laughs> marriage situation and of some really stressful situations that it was, it wasn't just learning about marriage around the world. It was also in, like interrogating what it really meant to me and starting to stop asking other people those questions and start asking myself those questions by the end of the book. Hearing that it took you so long to write this book that like you were able to write the one story in a year, but then that you spent the seven years hanging the other vignettes off of it and weaving them in is so comforting. And it makes a lot of sense. Like a huge ingredient in memoir writing is time. The mm -hmm. stories are there. We feel significant, but there's time to sort through the meaning and sort through the significance. And that can change over time too. Absolutely. Absolutely. As we change too. And so much of this, I just had such little sense of self when I first set out on this journey and writing uh, helped bring my me to myself. And even the process of writing, I like to joke that it was like a Roomba vacuum that hits every wrong corner on the way to find its correct direction. That's what structuring this book felt like. When I, when I was too close to it, I didn't know what I was really saying. In fact, early versions of the book, I remember just vaguely mentioning my LDS background. It was like, oh, I got married in a religious building in Salt Lake. Just kind of like, oh, that doesn't really matter. And then realizing over the course of the book of this is this identity, this cultural memoir of my own is central to what was going on. I think the Mormonism is really at the heart of the story in a significant way. It's not the whole story. It's not the only story. But the influence it has is so strong that I think it has to be explored for these other stories to really have the significance that they need to. Yeah. And I think I first started realizing that I was in a writing workshop when I just barely had that kind of what happened draft. And I was in Boston and I kept bringing material and people just kept asking, like, I don't understand why you got married. I don't understand why you got married. And then I started to realize, like, oh, my experience was not like other people's experience and really starting to wade through that and realize it was my job as a writer to make visible that invisible, even to myself, pressure that I felt to get married and realizing that wasn't necessarily the universal experience. Although I do think it heightens some of the universal questions we all have about what does partnership mean in 2023, especially wanting to be strong, independent women and all of those things. So I think you may have answered my next question, but the writer and me, the like journalist in me as I'm reading this, I'm like, okay, Rachel, what were the stories that you were collecting for? Like, did you have a project in mind? Were you seeing what they were going to be for? Did you use them in a different way before? Or kind of did the way they get used was the book? I was so curious about that, reading about the stories you were collecting and maybe your intention with them versus their application when you actually use them. 
Yeah, I have not published or shared these stories outside of this book. I've just been holding them. And I also am still good friends with the main characters that we encounter in this book. And so I've just deepened those relationships as well over time. I think because I was just so close to the material and I didn't quite know what I was saying, I think when I first set out on this trip, I was like, I'm going to interview 100 people in Cusco, Peru about what marriage means to them. Something more of a like survey approach. And what it ended up being was actually these very close personal relationships. And I hope when someone reads my book, it doesn't feel like, oh, now she's in research mode. It's just becoming really close friends with a librarian in Bangalore or talking to my friend in Peru about what his engagement meant to him and just stitching those things together. And so it became more about relationships than about informants. That's so interesting. I loved the story about the library and the friendship with the librarian. Like that is something that I would read a whole book on just about that. It was so interesting and so beautiful. Titra is wonderful. Yeah. And a lot of commonalities there too. So I actually just went to New York City with her earlier this fall. It was, we had a great time. She showed me her country. Now I show her mine. So I want to get into talking about like some of the actual content. And there are just some things that like really struck me, especially from having a shared cultural background. And I saw like a lot of promotional material for your book on online because it was definitely like being shared in the circles I follow. And I was curious about it. But when I read the line, Mormon married mother, the end was like when I knew I was hooked. Like I knew I was going to read that. And I like reading that, I was like, yes, like that's how I saw my life. I don't think it was something that really hit me until I was graduating college single and realizing that all these things I had expected to do and been told to do, I had reached the end of what was going to work for me at this point in my life. And it was so sad that this wonderful life that I was building was not something that had been celebrated, that it was something that had been looked upon as something that would hopefully not happen to me. And so I would just love to know about those four words. Are they something that shaped your thinking for a long time? How did you develop them? How was it that you put it into those four words and what do they mean for you? Those words, that phrase came to me actually very early in the drafting process, and it just stayed there. I just felt like the real core of what I was getting at. I felt like I was dying when I got married because I felt like, again, this map that had been presented to me was at its end, but I I was 24 and I still had so many things I wanted to do and think and explore. And I just, I just, again, didn't have enough sense of self to realize I'm still an agent of my life and not just things that are happening to me or even my own choice to get married. And I essentially spiraled into a panic attack of like, I am, I am at the end, but it's not the end. And so, so much of the book and even my experience since, you know, it's navigating, like just getting a little bit more distance from that story and seeing, you know, this, but also, you know, my educational achievements and other things is just as important and exciting to celebrate. And, you know, the things that I'm most proud of in my life is not necessarily, you know, the day I decided to get married or even the happiest, you know, we have so many stories. And I think, I hope so much of this book is just interrogating stories, it's simple stories, stories that we just hold to be universal when everyone's experience with this is so unique and individual. So yeah, th those words came to me early and they stayed and it actually ended up on the back cover. And actually Austin, Austin's like, I don't really like those words, you know, but he, he had a very different experience as a Mormon male growing up than I think I did. And so it was important to me. So thank you for sharing. They resonated. That actually, I think like what you said, like he had a very different experience as a Mormon male growing up, I think is such a key thing that I really do not think Mormon men 
understand. And there's actually a passage that I wanted to read that I thought like just illustrated what the experience of being a woman in the church can look like growing up. And so this is in your book. I'm going to read a little paragraph. This paragraph comes right after you talking about like activity days and young women's and the differences between that and scouting. And I just think for me as a girl growing up in the Mormon church, I don't know if this was the first inequality that really hit me, but I think maybe the earliest was that activity days was twice a month and scouts was every week. That for me, I feel like was a start to a question of like, am I not worth as much as the boys? Like, why is it different for me? And so this paragraph, I'm going to read it now. My well-meaning mother used to pray with my siblings and me each day before he left for school. Please bless that the boys will go on missions and that the girls will get married in the temple. She once wrote these family goals next to our individual names on a pink post-it note and stuck it to the refrigerator. I couldn't have been older than 10, but at that moment, I sensed my brothers had the better deal. Young men could go on missions to far-flung places around the globe, then get married. Never mind, they often went to places like Idaho or that I would later decide proselyting wasn't for me. They had more options. So can you tell me, I feel like something that I've observed and experienced was that in many ways, like Mormon boys have a more autonomous stories and girls are part of that story. And so I would just like to know for you, like how this framing shaped the way you saw your future and your decisions about your future and how you were able to give yourself later on maybe more autonomy to be the main character in your story and and not an accessory to someone else's. Yeah. And I come to this point at some point in the third of the book, I, I start to make this distinction of like, oh, I'm not even just a character. I'm the narrator of my life. I'm so glad you brought up this question of autonomy. I often think about the role of agency. And even though I've always been an agent, I've always been doing things and pushing myself in ways that sometimes didn't make sense, sometimes didn't always seem like it was the thing I quote unquote should be doing. But I, even to this day, I have struggled to see myself as an agent and not just like this thing that happened to me, like this thing that happened to me that got, I, I got married or, or all of this. And so I think so much of, you know, why I describe this book as a coming of age story is I start to understand that the things that I see in Austin, Austin is confident, Austin is secure, Austin has a lot of intuition. He has a lot of emotional intelligence. He's got a really strong family background, you know, things that kind of felt maybe not necessarily what I had. And I realized like so much of what I loved about him was something that I wanted for myself. And so over the course of the book, I start to realize, oh, I also have these things. I have intuition. I have the ability to guide and direct my life. I have all of these things. It's just, it's just so buried. And so to start seeing myself as a narrator, not just a passive person in this trajectory. And sometimes it's it's not even like obvious because even though I like I was making choices, I was making choices all along, but to actually see myself as someone making choices and not just going along with life, that, that was hard. That was hard and it's still hard. And just constantly reminding myself that the most important voice in my head is my own and no one else can determine what is a good life for me but myself like that is literally my responsibility and I don't think that was necessarily instilled in me whether it's a list of things I should be doing or things I want to be doing or you know relationships I should be feeling to really start to see myself as someone who can we do have language for this we have language like personal revelation like I can intuit what is good for me I can exercise again agency agency is a core principle that really emphasizing these as much and just as much and seeing that as really the the trump card like no one else can determine what is a good life for anyone else but the individual 
women included. <laughs> in reading your book, like you talk about your ambition, you talk about your aspirations. And I often think about the phrase coined by Julie Hanks, like the idea of aspirational shame, the shame women feel for the aspirations because they're different than what they've been told they should want. And I think about myself and that I've always been very ambitious, but that I knew where the ceiling was. I knew where it was appropriate for my dreams to be. And I think a lot of my journey as an adult has been reframing that and giving m- myself the permission for my ambitions and for my aspirations to exist outside of, differently, apart from, in just a wide variety of ways from the appropriate framework. And doing that, I think, is something that is able to give you the courage to trust your intuition, to realize that the principle of personal revelation, like the idea that you can know what is best, extends from a different path from the map, applying the map differently, experiencing it all differently. Yeah. And in fact, what, there was one scene in early in the book where I actually had two patriarchal blessings. One was just somehow just not recorded when I went to the patriarch and the other and then he recorded another one right after and they were not the same blessing and for so much of my life it was like which one is it do I get married and settle down do I travel and have all these experiences and I we have to keep learning and relearning things these things but the way I reconciled it not even God was going to give me a map that narrow like I had a choice I had a choice here of how I wanted my life to go Okay, so there was another part that I wanted to read. So I will then, in fact, read the part I want to read. Okay, so this is the <laughs> You're passage. Awesome. As I grew up, I realized education would be my ticket to options, the safest gateway toward a vague form of freedom I sensed outside the walls of my world. My mom, a former elementary school teacher, encouraged us to take school seriously. We had a closet library filled with worn children's books and outdated encyclopedias. College was never a question for me as it was for the other girls my age. Of the 15 neighbor girls I spent most of my time with as a teen, only four went to college. Unusual for Latter-day Saints who generally value education. A few married soon after high school graduation. They all had their own valid, complicated life paths, but I wanted to know what else there was out there. Get your degree, mom said to me, but often with the refrain, your husband could die. You never know what could happen. It's a good backup plan. So unsurprisingly, given the name of my podcast, like that resonated deeply with me. That's exactly what I heard about my education my whole life. My education was not a happy thing about me being a developed person. It was a sad thing as in I might need a plan because what if a husband failed me by not showing up or being dead or being having to be divorced or not being a good enough provider. And so it definitely just shaped the way that I viewed my education. And I spent a lot of time like reframing that. And I just would love to hear for you like... Did those comments lead you to think of your degree as a backup plan? How did it shape your educational journey? How did it influence the way you were choosing to look at school to get a degree and navigating that path? I think the way it manifested for me is I almost had a reactionary level of just like an intense amount of ambition, but it was not directed. You know, I had this kind of vague, oh, I want to, you know, I know I want to go to college and I might even want to go to something called graduate school, but it was like so vague. I knew that education offered opportunities. Like I knew that somewhere deep in my bones and and abstractly. The way that it manifested for so long was just like doing really well in school, getting all the A's, working as hard as I could. (laughs) And it just like trusting somehow, you know, it's tricky because like there's genuine ambition, but there was also still this grain of I'm trying to be good. And it was almost like a socially appropriate way for me to, to have these accolades or something like that. So it was still like not really developed. I never really set out with oh, I know what what I want to do. I don't think anyone like knows. Some people, I guess, might know at the onset what they want to do. 
But I think for me, it's it was interesting because I think I actually do always know I wanted to be a writer, but I didn't allow myself to see that as a valid path. I think because I was so stuck and was like, I have to do something big. I have to do something important. Never mind that it was completely vague. It wasn't until my late 20s that I, it was a harrowing path to realize I want to go to graduate school, that elusive thing <laughs> for writing, for something as risky and wild as writing. And it took a lot of therapy, frankly, to realize that that's what I want to do. And it's okay to invest in that. It's okay to invest in myself in that way and not just like abstractly climb a vague career ladder of some unknown proportion to prove that I was a success. <laughs> I, I wish, you know, in hindsight, I wish that one options would have been presented and modeled. I didn't see women in my life who had necessarily careers. And so, so much of, you know, my experience was that reactionary type, but I just wish I had been taught to think about it more concretely for myself because I probably would have paired something a little bit more practical with writing. I also teach. I, I think women, all women should strive to have something for financial independence so that their choice to whether it's stay in a marriage or live in a certain place is really a choice and not, you know, a backup plan. <laughs> and so I'll never know. I'll never know what the path not taken would have looked like if it would have had seen careers modeled, if I would have been taught to actually think concretely about what I wanted to do with my life. I'm very lucky that this obsession with writing took me somewhere. But it has certainly not gotten me out of the woods of these bigger questions of what is what does that mean for my life? I thought a lot about how deeply concerning it is that a message I strongly internalized was that an ideal version of my life would be a version where I never had to work for money. Yes, like maybe a little bit while I was in college, but I really internalized that like ideally I would never need to make money. And I think about the wage gap in Utah, like how strongly that is mm. and how like it is correlated to like women often having lower paid jobs in Utah or part-time jobs. And I think sometimes people say that's the reason the wage gap exists. So maybe it's not a problem. But to me, like that's the heart of the problem of so many women in the state not seeing careers modeled, not imagining what a full-time job would look like for them, not imagining something that they're skilled in, that they're competitive in. And so often their talents and skills being used on a volunteer basis within the church. And then it's hard to translate the value of it over. And it's deeply concerning because like you were saying, the choice of what you do or don't do is so limited without financial resources. And even that sense of self, I feel like I've been clawing my way to a sense of self. And I don't think necessarily career is the answer. I don't think necessarily motherhood's the answer. Like it's more of a deeper internal sense of what we were just talking about. Okay, my agent of my life? Did I choose my life? Or am I choosing my life? You know, just that deep sense that life is not just happening to me, but that I am a participant in it in a present reactive way, because I'm actually there deliberately in it. It's tough. And I think it's tough for men too, in the sense that like, I think some of my early experiences in marriage, almost being like resentful, because Austin is an entrepreneur and was doing a risky career path. And so like, I had these like negative biases of this isn't how it should be. I shouldn't have, you know, so that was toxic too. And I think about the men who want to be artists or actors. I think in my heart, it's particularly painful for women. I think costs are born most there, but 
I think it's bad for everybody all around. I agree. I agree. I think at the crux, I think women are hurt the most by like patriarchal systems, but it's not like anyone is really thriving. There are maybe some people who are enjoying the most power and maybe things are great for them. But at the the heart of it all, like it's not an ideal system. It's not overall beneficial. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. So I would love to know, what did you learn about yourself in writing this book? Because I don't think you can write a memoir like this and like ascribe meaning or explore meaning, explore significance without coming away with your different understanding of yourself. And I would love to know what some of those takeaways for you were about, yeah, what you understood more about you. This is a good question. I just put my whole heart and soul into writing this book. It's a very open book. It's a very vulnerable book, but it's not a raw book. You know, every, like everything was workshopped and edited. And I really had to weigh, like, do I want this part to go out into the world? Do I really mean this? And I think the biggest thing was, you know, similar to what we just talked about of realizing that I am the narrator and not just a passing character in my own life story. And that as much as I might forget it in the day to day, because I do think we have to learn and relearn these things. I am the ultimate authority of my life and what I want it to look like and what feels right. And that is sacred, just like that perimeter around my selfhood is really important, regardless of the identities I inhabit or the labels I inhabit, who I'm married to or not married to or the family I come from or not, that is sacrosanct. That is so important. I think another thing I learned in writing this, and I had mentioned early in the in the book that I just kind of raced over the Mormonism of just like, and a lot of memoirs can get away with this, a vaguely Christian, just like wallpaper over it and realizing like that, that no, this way of my particular upbringing, not everyone has this experience, but this was my experience, was so at the root of my question, my ultimate question, and a little bit this tension of I can't do certain things if I'm married. These broken stories that were not necessarily even true, I just absorbed. And over the course of writing this, and in fact, I just did an audiobook, I was surprised at the things that were most difficult for me, like what in actually reading, you have to re-inhabit the story, you have to like perform it. I thought that maybe reading some things about my mother and her, her mental illness or being kicked out of my house, these things would be the most traumatic, the most difficult chapter to read for me. I had like an actual like little panic attack, like in the recording studio. And my director had to like, got, walk me through a meditation was chapter four in which, and it was also the hardest chapter for me to write. And it might not even be super obvious. But that is the chapter in which I try to make visible this invisible pressure. And I think pressure can be implicit or explicit. But all of those messages that in my life I had experienced that marriage was the most important thing I can do. And even eight years later, however long it's been, reading that audiobook three, <laughs> three months ago, it's painful. It's really painful. And, and it's, it's at this, um, this fault line in me that's just, just heavy. It's heavy. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I have to keep it in check. As I noted at the beginning of the interview, I love the four words, Mormon, married, mother, the end. I think though, the point of this book was like reckoning with that and redefining the story from separate from those words of what it meant for you personally. So I'm curious after writing this book, what would maybe be four words or even a few words that you would use to describe the story that you are now shaping for yourself? What a beautiful question. And it might not have the same literate of quality, but I think the first word would be uncertain. 
and not in like a terrifying abstract way, but in kind of a, a liberating self. You know, there is something very set and narrow about Mormon Married Mother of the End. I don't know. I am I am an evolving person. My career is evolving. My relationships are evolving. And so there's something expansive and a little bit scary about uncertainty. But, but I guess that's the life of a writer. But I wouldn't trade it. I'm so grateful to be doing what I'm doing. I think another word would just be like stories. I don't know where... I'm going to end up career-wise and financial independence-wise. I don't know what I'll be writing in five years, but I know, and I'm no longer afraid in the way I was in college, that like stories somehow don't matter. It's not a real or serious enough career. Like I'm fully invested in stories super matter, even our whole conversation. This is a story we are unearthing in our culture and as women. I think another word would be presence in staying close to myself and like my actual self and my intuition, especially if I'm open to things changing or maybe there's a new story that needs to unfold. And the last word, this is a word that I throw out a lot, yonder. <laughs> I just, just, and I think when, as, a, as a kid, I used to have a fear of kind of the future. It was just like a vague beyond thing. And because I didn't necessarily feel like an agent, I think it was just like scary. Like I literally had a mind block of like, I cannot plan my life. It was a mental barrier. And now I embrace it. Oh, that's yonder. And the way I frame it is like a place of intellectual and an emotional and spiritual freedom. And I want to inhabit that like every day and keep it close rather than being afraid of what comes next. I love that like the four, like kind of the four words, which really it's five, but I'm counting the end as one word. But those four (laughs) words are kind of like a path with a destination that stops like very early in your life. And those words that you talked about owning now, those are things that are broad and open and they're experienced and they're experienced in different ways together in ways that move and change and they're not a set destination. And I think in so many ways, like the act of you reclaiming your story through the book, and I think for a lot of Mormon women, is reclaiming a story that is open, that is not set, that has the space for them to become who they want to be and who they feel called or impressed or led to be. Yeah, very well said. And there can be something scary about that expansiveness. If we can push through the fear, there's such just a beautiful expansiveness and openness and acceptance and self-love and self-understanding I think on the other side of that, if we can get outside the scripts. Yeah, this is like the most important, like fractal of my life is just like this, this story and continuing to examine it. So I'm just so grateful for the chance to think more about it and for your good questions. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd want to add that you didn't feel you got a chance to say? Not necessarily, just whether I'm like shouting it to myself or shouting to anyone who needs to hear it of just like, I give you permission to be the agent of your life. Nothing big or fancy needs to happen for that to take place. It's just an everyday ongoing reframing. It's like moving a river. Sometimes like these core stories, you can't move a river immediately, but like stone by stone, you can redirect a river. We can redirect these stories that we hold about ourselves and our destinies or potential. And I feel (laughs) in solidarity with people who are on that path too, because I still need those reminders because this was a core part of my upbringing and you don't just learn it and then ta-da, I'm done. And And that's what I love so much about this podcast too, of continuing to bring in these conversations and this like cultural and community reminder that life is so much bigger 
and beautiful for it. Where are the best places for people to find you on the internet and for people to find your book? I have a website, rachelrecruit.com. I also have a newsletter I send out once a month that has some book news. I have two novels coming out in 2024. And yeah, I'm on like all the social platforms. Hang out with me on TikTok, Twitter, (laughs) Instagram. I'll put that in the show notes. Thank you again for your time. I really was looking forward to this. Thank you so much, Maddie. Yeah. And if our paths cross in Utah, I'd love to grab lunch or something and hear more about your stuff. But I will continue to listen to the podcast. I'll give it the star ratings and just so championing what you're doing. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Rachel for joining me. And thank you so much to you for listening. I hope you will read Rachel's book. And I really hope you'll take the time to rate and review it. Your review can be something as simple as I really liked this book. Speaking of rating and reviewing, please take a moment to rate and review this podcast if you haven't. It really helps me with connecting with the people that I need to, to help more people hear about this podcast and be able to participate in these conversations. You can find me on Twitter at Madeline K. You can find me on Instagram at This Is Not A Backup Plan. That's where you'll find all the fun posting about the March Sisters Madness, which please participate and please show me what you're doing. Next week, I have an awesome interview with Allison Horrocks of the Dolls of Our Lives podcast, where we talk about her connection with Beth March and also what American Girl dolls the March sisters would have. It's going to be a lot of fun. In the meantime, remember, this is your life. It's not a plan B.